Well, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. You know, uh, 11 days ago on Thursday Night Football, and even if you're not a football fan, you've probably seen this, there's a video clip of an event that took place. It made all the 6.30 national news, and it had to do with some, a, a young man uh, losing control of his temper, or maybe we just say a very angry young man. I want to share that clip with you this morning. You can roll that, please. Here's a flag as, whoa, hello, whoa. Uh, Mason Rudolph got Rudolph into it. to get out of there. Oh, my goodness. Rips the helmet wow. off Rudolph's head and then eventually swings it and hits him in the head. And then Ogan Joby comes up and hits Rudolph from behind. Beyond words, oh, Joe. Gosh, that's one of the worst things I've ever. Well, you got a good view of the feet there at the end. I'm not sure what happened. It didn't do that in the early service. But they show a close up of him swinging the helmet and actually hitting the, the quarterback of the opposing team on the head. Here's the thing. They say that Miles Garrett, who did that, and by the way, he's been suspended indefinitely by the NFL, that off the field, he is actually a very mild, meek-mannered, quiet young man. The thing about anger that we're going to talk about today is a lot of times, and I'm not excusing this, what he did was absolutely wrong, but a lot of times anger, it just kind of jumps up on us. It's like it, it just happens almost sometimes before you know it. One guy put it this way, it, <coughs> excuse me. it is a learned reaction in which you behave in ways that you would rather not. Now you might be surprised to learn how accurately that describes David, King David, the guy that we've been looking at in the Psalms, how accurately he, it describes an anger issue that he had. So in this series, we've been looking at David in this series that we've been calling How You Doing. And really, this series isn't been so much about how are you doing with your emotions, how you are handling those emotions, but really has been what are you going to do with those emotions? Or where are you going to let those emotions take you? And we've been using the illustration of the road sign, and it's kind of got the fork in the road. And we say all emotions, we kind of have a choice. God desires for our emotions to take us closer to Him. But we have a choice whether we let our emotions take us closer to Him or we let our emotions take us further away from Him. And so we've been kind of talking about these different vehicles and letting vehicles represent emotion. And so like I had the Ford Fairmont of shame the second week. And, and you know the Ford Fairmont of shame. Shame can take you to a place of, of isolation or we can let Jesus drive and it can take us to a place of, of freedom and grace. We talked about the uh, 1971 Ford Pinto of anxiety. 
And anxiety causes a lot of apprehension in our life. And sometimes it leads to despair and hopelessness. But if we let Jesus drive the vehicle, it can take us to a place of community and to a place of peace. And then last week, and we, I'm not going over all of them today, but we talked about the, the Ford Taurus and, how, and just how busy we are all the time and, and how we're just going and we're going and we're going and the temperature light comes on and it tells us we're overheating, but we ignore it because we got things to do and places to go. And then eventually the engine locks up and we're, beside the, we're at the side of the road. And how we do that in our personal lives. And sometimes what drives that stress and that, that tiredness we have and that, and that busyness we have is that we're always trying to get the things that we perceive that we lack. If I just had a newer car, if I just had a newer house, if I just had that, that particular title at work, if I had the bigger salary, then I wouldn't lack for anything and I wouldn't be so stressed out and all those kinds of things. But we know that's not the way it works. And we're just always going, and we don't have that rhythm of rest in our lives that we talked about last week. And because we don't have that rhythm of rest, our stress and our busyness just aggravates all the other emotions. But we need that rhythm of rest to renew ourselves spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And so the question is not the emotion, whether it's right or wrong, but where is it taking you? Is it taking you closer to God, or is it taking you farther away from Him? So this morning's our last Sunday in this series. And we're going to talk about an emotion this morning, anger, which tends to be a secondary emotion. Like a lot of times, anger pops up, but there's really something underneath it that's actually causing the anger reaction. Maybe you remember from, from your psychology classes in, in high school or college, a guy by the name of John Gottman. And he came up with this idea he called the angry iceberg. And I think they have a picture of it up here on the screen behind me. And the anger iceberg basically shows that, okay, anger is what you see above the waterline, above sea level. You see the anger. So you see anger in people's lives, but what you don't always see are all the emotions that are underneath that, that you can't see. So they're below sea level, so to speak. For instance, maybe you see anger, and below the surface is anxiety. Now, why would anxiety show itself in anger? Well, maybe it's because most of the time when we're, we're anxious about something, it's because it's something we can't control. And so we can't control a circumstance or we can't control a person or we can't control an outcome. And so we get very anxious about that. And then that surfaces in anger because we, we just can't control things. And it makes us angry. Maybe the thing below the surface, you see somebody that's angry, and what's below the surface is rejection and abandonment. Now, why would that cause anger? Well, maybe you've been hurt, and you've been abandoned, and you've been betrayed, and you're like, that's never going to happen to me again. And so you become bitter, and you become mean, and you become angry. And so what we find that there's just a lot of emotions that kind of surface as anger. So in this series, we've been looking a lot at the book of Psalms, and we've been looking at David. And this morning, we're going to look at a psalm. And of course, all the scriptures will be up on the, on the screen behind me. We're going to look at a psalm that's called an 
angry psalm. And David is just ticked off in this psalm. And he's going to say some things in this psalm that you're going to be like, I didn't know you could pray like that. I mean, he's going to say some things that are just make you very uncomfortable. And his, as, as we've talked about before, they're prescriptive in nature, the psalms are. It's like David is not going to give us, okay, here's a five-step management plan for anger management. Here's what you need to do. Do these five things. That'll take care of your anger. He's not doing that. What he's saying is, I want to invite you along in my journey. And I want you to see the anger that I've experienced. And so there's this angry psalm, and it actually has a name, and there's more than one of them, but they're called imprecatory psalms. And they literally mean cursing. Imprecatory means cursing. So, like I said, when we read this, you're going to be like, wow. Because in like Psalms chapter 23, where we were last week, everybody's heard it. But I'm guessing you're probably not that familiar with Psalms 109, an imprecatory psalm. Because we typically don't read these kind of psalms in church, and you'll see why in just a minute. You know, we tend to stick to the praise and the worship and the thanksgiving psalms. But this angry psalm represents a part of David's life. And it's something that represents, is represented in our life too, because a lot of times we just want to kind of shove anger issues under the rug, so to speak. And David just kind of gets it out there, and he, and he kind of says, God... And he just gets really honest with him about something in his life that has made him angry. So today we're in Psalms 109. It's one of the angriest of all psalms. Remember last week we left David in Psalms 23? Cool, calm, collected, sitting by green grasses beside still waters. I mean, he's just, just totally chill. Not so much this morning. So as I begin reading, David in the first eight verses, seven verses, is talking about an enemy. So that's kind of the context here. He's talking to God about one of his enemies. And then just listen to what he wants God to do to this enemy. God, let his years be few. Let someone else take his position. May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. I mean, just listen to the anger bubbling up. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. May creditors seize his entire estate and strangers take all that he has earned. Let no one be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all of his offspring die. My goodness, David, why don't you tell us what you really think? I mean, he is angry. I mean, his prayer. I hope this guy dies. I hope he loses his job. I hope he loses his legacy. I hope his kids become fatherless and they become homeless and they live on the street and, and his wife becomes a widow. And I hope he has no friends. I hope his kids have no friends. I hope his kids die. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I mean, this is some strong stuff. Did any of you learn how to pray like that? I don't think I've ever prayed a prayer like that. You know, I remember Psalms 23, and, but I don't think anybody probably in here, somebody's taught you Psalms 109, and they say, okay, pray that before you go to bed at night, right? I don't think that happens. But David is angry. 
He's a military man. He has an army with him. I mean, he could easily make this happen, what he's talking about. I mean, he could kill this guy. He could make his children's orphans. He could make his wife a widow. But he doesn't. Instead, he's releasing these strong feelings of anger to God. You know, each week I've kind of picked a vehicle. I kind of mentioned some of them to you earlier. And uh, just to kind of represent whatever emotion it was. And so I started thinking about anger and what emotion it was. And I've had some crummy cars through the years, so I had several I could choose from for this. But the vehicle I picked out was actually not necessarily my vehicle, but it was a Ford 2000 series tractor that we used to have at that camp that I used to work at in North Carolina at that youth camp. And it looks something like this. And uh, I hated that thing because that tractor, and it was 1960s, maybe late 1950s model tractor, the issue with it was this. It was totally undependable. Like every time you got to use it, there, you needed to use it, there'd be a problem with it. And mostly we just used it to, to grade dirt roads and for snow removal, and it didn't do a very good job with either of those kind of things. But it was just so independable. You'd go to use it and it wouldn't start. You'd be going down the road and like the lights would go off and all the electrical system would just go. You'd try to put it into gear and it wouldn't go into gear. You'd show up and it had a flat tire. It was always something like if you knew you were going to have to use that tractor, whatever task you were going to use it for, you needed to build in some extra time because you knew at some point you were probably going to have to work on it. And I would just get so aggravated with it, just, just frustrated, just hated that thing. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, blizzard of 1993, I was living up there at that time. I understand down here y'all had 21, 23 inches of snow. Well, up there we had about 60 plus inches, and we had snow drifts of 10 feet tall. And uh, so, so that tractor wasn't made to push around that kind of snow. So we just like every hour go out on the roads and try to take a couple inches off at a time. So I, I'm driving that thing, and I'm in the middle of the road when I start smelling gas real strong, and then the tractor just quit. And I looked, got off the tractor and looked, and there's gas bubbling out of the top of the carburetor, and what it ended up being was a float issue. So there in a blinding snowstorm, at night, I am rebuilding the stupid carburetor on that thing. And I drop at one point, because you can't work, carburetor parts are real small, and you can't work keep your gloves on while you're working with him. And I dropped a little screw into the snow. That just made me even more mad. Anybody in here ever like call uh, concrete objects and animate objects names? Anybody in here do that besides me? Okay, a few of you being honest, but I bet more of you do that. I had a favorite name for that thing. You stupid piece of junk! That's what I called that thing. I just hated it. It was just unpredictable and undependable. And that's what it's like to live with some of you. Because nobody knows when you're going to explode. They have no idea. You're just unpredictable. People don't know how you're going to respond. You're constantly overheating. You blow gaskets. People just want to stay out of your way. They don't feel safe. They're scared. And this is exactly where David is in Psalms 109. He is ticked off and he is about to blow his top. 
We're not told specifically in Psalm 109 who the enemy is, but almost all scholars agree that it's this man found over in 1 Samuel chapter 25. His name is Nabul. That's how you pronounce his name. Now, I know that we live in Georgia, and even though his name is pronounced Nabul, most of you, when you go home and if you talk about this sermon at lunchtime or something, you're going to say Nabal, okay? So that's what you're going to call him. So I'm just going to give into it right now, and we're just going to call this guy Nabal. Make it nice and simple so everybody knows exactly who we're talking about. So David has this encounter with Nabal in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And just to give you some context, David is just rolling with 600 battle-tested men. I mean, these are like special forces guys. They are living off the grid. And they're fighting these various tribes in the wilderness of Paran. And when they fight these people, they're protecting the, the townspeople. And they're also protecting the shepherds. And it's kind of is the custom when it comes time for the, the owner of the sheep to shear the sheep or slaughter them or whatever, then they kind of repay these people who have kind of been providing security. And in this particular case, it's David and his men. So David, and this is before David became king, Saul is still king, David sends some of his men to Nabal to, to ask him, to, to be reimbursed, so to speak, for their security efforts. We pick it up in verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 25. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. So we're getting a description of this guy. He had a thousand goats. He had 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And she's described as just the opposite of him. She was intelligent and a beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. And it's interesting that his name actually means, Nabal actually, the name means fool. And that's who he was. He was foolish, he was harsh, he was dishonest, he was manipulative, he was one of those guys that could just explode at any minute. So the scripture continues. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, and basically if you're reading the original Hebrew, it would say this, Shalom, Shalom, Shalom. We've translated it, long life to you, good health to you, good health to you and your household, good health to all that is yours. And it continues, Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. The whole time they were in Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them to eat. So David is making his case. Hey, we've been good neighbors. We've protected you. I've got a lot of hangry men here. But we've not taken anything that wasn't ours. We protected you from these wild bands of, of, of different tribal peoples. And so now we would like to ask you to, to reimburse us for our services. 
So would you please give us something? Notice, as, you, as I read that, that David's men were very respectful. They were very humble. Then we read in verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants. Now listen to his answer. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master these days. Why should I take my bread and water and meat that I've slaughtered from my shears and give it to men who are coming from who knows where? Listen, Nabal knows exactly who David is. And not only does he reject David, he does it in a very mean-spirited offensive, demeaning way. And he may be used to talking to people like this, but David is not used to being talked to like this. So we get on to verse 12. David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to these men, Strap on your swords. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. And 400 men went on with David and 200 stayed back with supplies. David is angry. I mean, he is ticked off. You know, they say there are about four levels when you're talking about anger. There's annoyance, frustration, hostility, and rage. And I'm guessing probably even before this happened, David might have been somewhere between frustration and hostility. I mean, he's hiding from Saul all the time. He's trying to kill him. He's living with 600 men in the middle of nowhere. That can't be a whole lot of fun. But whatever level strap your swords is, that's where David is at. And I'm thinking that's like rage plus two or three levels. I mean, strap on your swords. So he's angry. David is angry. So thinking about our sign again, You've, we've come to the first fork in the road. We're in the vehicle of anger. And here's the question. Am I going to react to my anger? Am I going to respond to my anger? David did. As soon as he hears it. Boys, strap on the swords. This is like killing a cockroach with a shotgun. Right? Like, yeah, you're going to kill the cockroach, but you might blow a hole in your wall or in your floor. You don't need 400 men with swords to go deal with a tightwad. You don't need swords to go have a discussion. But David, he expresses his anger in a pretty aggressive way here. Like, he is ticked off. And you're going to know that he's ticked off. Maybe some of you are like that with your anger. You tend to be identified by your anger or with your anger. Like you yell at people and you scream at people and you hit things and you call people names and, and you get aggressive. You say, no, I don't do that. Well, maybe you get angry this way. It's something that I've noticed in Christian circles as, as I've kind of observed. It's the passive, aggressive approach that a lot of seems to be the favorite approach of Christians. So that way, like, you can be mean with a smile on your face. You ever notice that Christians tend to do this? And you can treat people in a way that is harsh, but yet you got a smile on your face, so it's like you still got a way out. 
And so I've, you know, like observed some of the favorite passive-aggressive things that, that Christians say sometimes, like, well, I've got something to tell you, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. Well, there's probably a good chance if somebody says that I'm going to tell you something and you're not going to take it the right way, you're probably not going to take it the right way. And then you're probably going to say, well, let me tell you something, and you're probably not going to take this the right way. And then it just kind of escalates. Like, that's what we do with anger sometimes. Other people don't scream and yell. They just get really sarcastic. Other people get silent. They stonewall people. They shut people out. They ignore people. So maybe you think, well, I, I don't have any anger. I never get angry because I don't scream and yell and punch things. But do you do some of these other things? Because I think one of the real challenges is sometimes we don't even realize sometimes in ourselves when we get angry because we think angry people are people that just scream and yell and stomp and, and have a temper tantrum. David says, strap on your swords. So David and 400 of his men, they're headed to see this guy. We pick it up again in verse 14. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, so at, they're, they're talking to Abigail now. These are the servants of Nabal. David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, and he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day there was a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, Abigail, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. And you know, that's the problem sometimes with people who are angry all the time. The people who care about you and the people who want the best for you and love you, they can't talk to you because they don't know how you're going to respond. You're unpredictable. You're sensitive. You overreact. And you're like, well, nobody's ever told me that. Yeah, because they're afraid to. They're afraid to. And that's what's happening here with Nabal. And Abigail, she seems to have a great idea of how David is going to respond to her husband. And she certainly understands her husband. And so it says in verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five saves of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead and I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal any of this. So Abigail is brilliant. I mean, she kind of realizes the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And, and she's trying to cut this off before. And it's kind of interesting to me that, that she didn't say that she was going to pray about it first. She didn't wait till there are like 400 men on horses coming around the corner of her house and say, well, I guess I should pray about this. She doesn't look at it as an opportunity to get rid of her loser husband. Of course, I also want to know, who has this much food just sitting around ready to pack up at any time? But, but apparently, she does. But she realizes, you know, if I can send some food ahead, maybe I'll, you know, dissipate the situation a little bit. Disarm it just a little bit. One of my sons, when he was in college, waited a lot of tables at restaurants and 
for a little while after college, he worked at a, a Mexican restaurant. And he said, Dad, people would come in really angry and grumpy sometimes. And, you, and he said, you'd put a, a thing of uh, salsa and chips in front of them, and everything would just be okay. He said, they'd just start smiling and laughing and, and, and that kind of thing. Well, that's kind of Abigail's strategy here. You know, get some food to them, and, and let's see if we can dissipate a little bit of this anger. So it continues on in verse 20. And she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending toward her. And she met them. And David had just said, listen to what he says. It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. And so at this point, we see David is, is, is rehearsing. And we see what the anger problem really is. I did something good for this guy by watching his sheep. And what has he done to me? He's repaid me with bad things. Have you ever done that? I mean, I've done this. Like, like somebody wrongs you or you perceive that they've wronged you. And you think to yourself, I was kind. And I was generous, and I was accepting, and I was patient, and I was thoughtful. And this is how they responded to me? And the Bible talks about righteous anger. Maybe you look at this and you think, well, this sounds like righteous anger. But you know there's a real key characteristic of righteous anger? Do you know what it is? It doesn't get angry when you're personally offended. And Jesus is a great example of this. Jesus, when he got angry, and he did get angry from time to time, he wasn't angry because he felt like he was personally offended. That's not when he got angry. Jesus got angry when he saw other people, hurting people, vulnerable people, when he saw them getting hurt. So a test of spiritual maturity, so to speak, is your anger, are you getting angry because of how you're treated or an injustice that you think that you've experienced? That's not righteous anger. The kind of anger that Jesus displays for us, are you angry because someone who can't protect themselves, someone who's hurting, somebody who's vulnerable, that they're being hurt? That's a different kind of anger, and that's righteous anger. So David and his men, they've got this perspective this, this non-righteous kind of anger. And they're probably getting angrier and angrier as they ride, and, and there's, maybe their stomachs are growling, and, and Abigail comes out to meet them. And as she comes out to David, David is just kind of rehearsing in his mind what he's going to do to this guy. And we read in verse 23, When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. What was she doing there? She was doing something that's really hard to do. Humbling yourself in front of an angry person. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked Nabal, my husband. He is just like his name means, fool, and folly goes with him. You know what she's saying? David, don't overreact. And what she says is just brilliant here because she wants David to see the bigger picture. David, I know how you're feeling in this moment, 
But this is going to follow you the rest of your life. I know that you're mad and you've been wronged. But don't, don't let murder be the answer. There's a narrative that's going to be told about this day for the rest of your life. And you don't want that to be the narrative. You've got to stop and think about this. And she goes on in verse 28. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no long wrongdoing will be found on you as long as you live. Don't let this blemish your record, she goes on in verse 31. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and repentance. So it brings us to the second fork in the road. When you're in that vehicle of anger, are you going to rehearse what you're going to do or say? Or are you going to stop and reflect and think about the way that you feel? Which one? David, he's just rehearsing it. You ever do that? And like, man, you're just thinking in your head, and I, I, I know this is what we do. Man, I'm, I'm going to get him. I'm going to say this when I see him, and I'm going to do this. It's like we have a DVR in our brain, and we just keep hitting play, because I've been wronged, and he, he's not going to get away with this. And if I don't do something about it, nobody else is going to do something about it. They're not going to disrespect me like that. I'm not going to stand for that. And we just keep pressing and pressing. Am I right? Is that what we do? We just start rehearsing all the stuff? That's what David is doing. Abigail stops and said, look, David, look at the bigger picture here. Are you like really angry at, at, at Nabal and what's been, happened here? Or, or maybe there's something else in play here. And you know, you think about David, and maybe this comes from the fact that, like I mentioned earlier, King Saul's been chasing him for a decade trying to kill him. That puts some stress in your life, maybe some anger and frustration in your life. And you can't do anything about Saul. So maybe it's transference anger. You're going to take something out on Nabal. It's like this guy I saw at the hospital not too long ago. He's standing by the elevator, and I'm coming up to the elevator. And I don't know what was wrong, but he was about to wipe out that elevator button. I mean, he was just furious. And I don't you know, I'm just thinking to myself, I mean, just pounding on that button. And I'm thinking, man, I just don't think that slow elevators is all the issue here. I mean, he was just letting that elevator have it. And you know, when things are bothering you sometimes, when you're overreacting, stop, reflect, and ask, why am I dealing with this like this? Maybe you're yelling and screaming at your wife and your kids and, and it's for nothing. Like, why am, I, why am I like this? This is just trivial. What, what's going on? And it's interesting when David goes in this rant, if you go on down to Psalms chapter 109, verse 22, he's very transparent. He says, for I am poor and needy and my heart is full of pain. Pain? Pain can cause anger to surface. I'm sure you've heard this before, this expression. Hurt people hurt people. And certainly that's true. So are you going to stop and reflect, why am, I, why am I doing this? Why am I feeling this way as you pray to God about this? And Abigail seven times brings God into the conversation here. And she speaks of God's plan and God's protection. <coughs> Verse 29, she says... 
Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. In other words, David, you're in God's safe, so to speak. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. Do you know what she's referring to? She's reminding David of a time in his life when he pulled a stone out, put it in a sling, whipped that thing, that stone came out and hit Goliath in the forehead and he fell dead. She's reminding him, said, God was with you then. God is with you now. And you can trust God to deal with this situation. Which brings us to the third fork in the road. Will I let my anger get the best of me and go down that path? Or will I release it to God? And when I say release it, I don't mean like you sit cross-legged on the floor and fold your arms and go, um, that's not what I'm talking about, you know, that you're going to release it into some magical bad feelings abyss somewhere. But I'm talking about, God, I want to react this way. Here's how I want to respond. This is what I want to do. But God, I'm going to let you have it. You deal with it however you want to, God. And here's how our story ends. David said to Abigail, verse 32, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you here today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day, from avenging myself with my own hands. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. And then I like just the simplicity of this. We will not kill your husband. We will not kill your husband. So Abigail goes back home. There's a party going on. Her husband is drunk. I'm guessing she just crawls into bed, pulls the covers over herself. She gets up the next morning. Her husband is sober, and it says, In the morning, when Nabal was... (coughs) Sorry, I got a frog in my throat this morning. I left my water down there. (coughs) Excuse me. And his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. So in other words, David says, You know what? God took care of this, and this is how God decided to handle this problem. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and he has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. Verse 42, Abigail quickly got on a donkey and became his wife. Not the donkey's wife, David's wife. (laughs) does kind of read funny, doesn't it? So Nabal has a stroke. That's what scholars interpret this as. And ten days later he dies. David marries Abigail. End of story. So David, he's out of alignment. He's ticked off. God uses Abigail, so to speak, to to help David out. David, take a big, deep breath. Figure out why you're acting this way. Let God handle this. And so that's what he does. He turns it over. If we were to look at the very last verse of Psalms chapter 109, it reads, 
But I will give repeated thanks to the Lord, praising him to everyone, for he stands beside me. He stands beside the needy, ready to save from those who condemn them. So here's what you see. He started off in the first part of the passage talking about his enemy. The verses that we read, he's just enraged about what this guy has done to him. But then he moves from that rage to worship and turning that anger over to God. Just some very practical insights as we kind of wrap up this morning that I see in this story about David and I think kind of fit our lives. The first is this, because we all face conflict from time to time. Anger comes up. When conflict arises, be wise. What do I mean by being wise? Look at the whole picture. Don't jump to conclusions. Do you have all the information? Because there's always two sides to every story. Number two, whenever conflict arises, be patient. Restrain yourself from doing anything hastily. Slow down. Pump the brakes, so to speak. I can just speak for myself, but I have seldom made wise decisions in a hurry. Very seldom have I done that. Made a lot of bad decisions. Thirdly, sometimes the best thing that you can do in a conflict is nothing. I can tell you, rarely have I felt sorry for something I didn't say. Very rarely have I wished I'd have said something and I didn't. That hardly ever happens that I felt sorry for what I didn't say. I don't know what vehicle you're traveling in this morning. I don't know what emotions that you're dealing with. And of course, we've only covered five or six in this series. And I don't know if it's shame or anxiety or stress or busyness or anger, whatever it is. I know this, whatever vehicle that you're in, Jesus wants to be in it with you. He wants to make sure that you're using that to get closer to him. But he has one requirement when he climbs into the vehicle. He has to be the driver. He has to drive. Would you pray with me, please?